Well, good morning. So as we kick off today, I want to ask the question. The question I want to start the morning off with is, do you believe God is powerful? Awesome. God is powerful. We serve an amazing, powerful God that can rock our world. But sometimes in our walk, we encounter situations where it seems like God's taken his time. I know in my life and in my family's life, we have been on a path that seems to be kind of the never-ending path. At some point in my life, it is my desire to go into full-time vocational ministry. Shortly after my dad passed away, I realized that God was calling me to train and to go into ministry. And so in 99, we sold our house. We moved from Maryland all the way down to Texas, where if you've ever been there, it's a different country. (laughs) And it was one of those things that, you know, you make the transition, you realize all of a sudden I have no friends because I don't know anyone now. I'm in a new area. There are no trees in Texas. I don't know if you knew that, but in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there's like three trees per acre. And so we get there, and it was a really, really tough adjustment. But we get there, but God had done a number of amazing things to make it very clear that he was in control, powerful, and I was right where he wanted me to be. To give you an example, so when I was starting to consider going to Texas, one of the things that I kind of lifted up to God is, God, if I'm going to go in Texas and I'm going to do this seminary thing, and I have kids and a wife to provide for, somehow I'm going to need to be able to work, and we need to make enough money to to do this. Not only that, but somehow I also have to continue school. I know that this is a lot to ask God, but if, if you could, it would be really, really cool if I could work from home. And not to overdo it, God, but if you could, it would be really, really cool if I could adjust my hours as needed, because sometimes school, well, if you're me, you tend to procrastinate, and then you've got all kinds of stuff due at the end, and so it's really hard to put in a heavy load of work and a heavy dose of school right at the end of a semester. And so I lifted up all these things to the Lord. I never even applied for a job. I had a friend said, I need you to send me your resume. I've been talking to another friend of mine who lives in Texas. So I sent my resume off. He got the resume. Basically, they met with me, supposedly for an interview. I don't think he asked any questions. And basically, they're like, okay, you've got the job. I'm like, cool. What am I doing exactly? So I found that I got this job. My boss, one of the other things, I said, God, I know that this is a lot to ask. But it would be cool if my boss knew that studying and getting a ministry degree was my number one priority. So as I meet with my boss, one of the things he says is, hey, I'm just assuming school is your first priority. I was like, what? So all of these things began to line up. It was absolutely amazing. So I go there, I get a job. It turns out I get complete flex hours. I can work from home. I can adjust my hours anywhere from zero to 40 hours a week at whim, as long as I record my time. Pretty phenomenal. Began my mission of uh, conquering uh, DTS classes, and for uh, two and a half years would continue that track, only to find out that the company I worked for, Arthur Anderson, was going to go through this little bit of a debacle. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Arthur Anderson, but it's this large company that used to exist. Notice I say that in the past tense. 
In a period of just a few months, it would go from 85,000 people down to 200. And I lost my job. And during that time, I was very upbeat, in fact, was very excited. And Lisa's like, I'm excited. I'm like, oh, okay. And why are you excited? Because we get to see God provide. And it was really cool that during that time, I think that we actually modeled what faith is supposed to look like. And I, I don't say this to toot our own horns, but I think during that time, I, I genuinely believe God was going to provide at the right time. And so we had no money. We were completely broke. And after six months, we had devastated the bank account. We were on state-assisted food, state-assisted medical. It was getting pretty tough. I interviewed for a position out of Addison, Texas, which would have looked almost identical in terms of flexibility and everything else. It would have let me finish school. And ironically, somewhere uh, just before this time, Lisa and I had talked, said, you know, whenever we finish school, still thinking optimistically, really believe that God is calling us to live somewhere in the Virginia, D.C., metropolitan area. So I ended up getting this job offer. They said, but here's the catch. It's not in Addison, Texas. You'll have to move to Virginia. For all the faith that we had that God would provide, when God did not provide the way we wanted, my world was rocked. See, I had seen too many miracles to know that God was in this. And even in this job offer, it was almost as if God was saying, Just in case there are any questions, this is me moving you. But it didn't make any sense. Like, but God, I still have another two years worth of classes to take. But God, we've been working on this ministry plan. I've met with several professors. I got to meet with one of the founders of Promise Keepers. God, aren't we doing things? And God seemingly pressed the pause button. And so the question is, is when God presses the pause button... And God's delays start to disrupt our world. What do we do with God? So today, we're going to explore what's happening in the midst of God's delays. We're going to see in 1 Samuel 28, 29, 30, and 31, we're going to take a look at three things. The first thing we're going to look at is Saul's final act of defiance. Saul's final act of defiance. The second thing we're going to look at is David's acquired act of devotion. And the third thing we're going to see is God's apparent delay. God's apparent delay. So to set this up, with Saul's final act of defiance, and this is when we move into 1 Samuel chapter 28. Here's the setting. So in 1 Samuel 28, down from the southwestern territory we're seeing the Philistines begin to move forward. The setting of 1 Samuel 28 is a couple things. One, first, Samuel dies. Now, you guys probably remember that Samuel was the prophet who prophesied a couple of different things. One, he would tell Saul that the kingdom was torn away from him. The second thing that he did is he anointed David as king. So when the Philistines are encamped along the southwest border, What we see is, southwest would be north, south, well, this way for you guys, right? So the southwest border, what we see is he begins to panic. He's getting a little nervous. And rightly so. The Philistines are a tough group. You may remember that this is the same group that had them shaking in their boots before. But we now also have the added tension of the fact that 
Samuel's died. Here's some of the significance of that. See, when a, a prophet prophesies, there are a few occasions where it appears that God actually relents. God pulls back after a change of heart or after intercession. But when a prophet dies, those prophecies become sealed. I don't think we have any instance in Scripture where God changes his mind over a couple different prophets. I might be wrong, and if I am, I would love to to hear the account. But Samuel dying is a big deal. One, we don't have anyone to intercede for Saul. Also, the very real sense of those prophecies could be coming to fruition, I'm sure, are on King Saul's mind. So in addition to that, Saul is going to take the Urim and Thummim, and nobody really knows what the Urim and Thummim is. Some have likened it to basically casting dice or lots. But he's going to take the Urim and Thummim, he's going to inquire of the Lord. This is the first time, by the way, that he's inquired of the Lord since before that prophecy. Seems a little late. So he inquires of the Lord. God doesn't answer. Now I got to tell you, my own research on this, I'm a little bit confused. Confused primarily because I don't know how you get an I don't know answer from the Urim and Thummim based on my reading. But somehow God says, I'm not going to give you an answer. And so Saul does the unthinkable. In 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 6, it says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Dot, dot, dot. So he finds this woman who's a medium. The woman, when he finds her, says this, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So one of the things that deeply troubled me about this story is there's this sense that Saul has crossed over some line and that there is no hope of redemption. And that really just weighed on me as I was studying this. Is that really what's going on? And as we look at this text here, I believe actually right here we're getting some clues as to what's happening. So, see, the the first thing is I think God is actually giving him a second chance right now. Hey, Saul, you know the edict that says you're not allowed to have mediums? You know the one that you said, send them all out of the land, no mediums, no necromancers? Yeah, yeah, that one. You're about to cross over that line. See, I think God has given him a second chance. Saul's going to just charge ahead. See, Saul's afraid. He's going to charge ahead. Well, she proceeds to intercede for him and calls up whoever he would name, which turns out to be Samuel, which I I confess you, this whole story is a little bizarre. All I can say is that somehow God allows this to happen and the prophet comes up and apparently it is the legit prophet. I don't believe it's a demon or something else. The narrator doesn't seem to believe that. And it even prophesies just the way it was originally prophesied and would tell Saul basically gigs up. Remember how I told you the kingdom's going to be torn from you? It's about to be torn. So at the end of this, he's completely terrified. Now, if you recall back in 1 Samuel 15, in verse 23, it says something fascinating. It says, for rebellion 
is as the sin of divination. See, it's fascinating in the beginning when Samuel talks to the king. And King Saul says, hey, I've done everything I'm supposed to, but he's really rebelled. The prophet is telling Saul, are you getting this? What you did is so bad, it's like divination. And you can imagine him going, well, yeah, but I'm not actually, this isn't divination. This is just my, you know, small sin. It doesn't matter that much. But what happens later in life, he's going to fulfill that to a T. He's going to now actually practice divination. So I think the takeaway here is that Saul was really living a double life. See, on the surface, he would appear to do things that seem to have kingdom merit. I'm going to send the mediums out. I'm going to send the necromancers out. I'm going to do these things which appear to honor God. But in reality, he cherished sin. He cherished his own way. He cherished his own things. And that secret world was destroying him. So he would have to come to grips with this harsh reality, the same harsh reality we have to. We cannot fool God. We cannot fool God. So he would give his final act of defiance. And you say, what is defiance exactly? When I was about seven or eight, I had this piggy bank. It was a green crayon piggy bank. I still remember this thing. And in that piggy bank, I had a couple of silver dollars that were given to me. And they were cool. Um, But what I knew at seven or eight is that silver dollars were money. That's what I took away from that. Silver dollars are money. Got it. No idea of intrinsic value of, hey, your great-grandfather gave these to you. They have value that way. They also have other kind of value. I got money, and I connected those dots well. There was a yard sale in the neighborhood, and in the yard sale, there was a little toy water gun. And I thought, two bucks? Yeah, I got that. Right, maybe it was a dollar. A dollar? Yeah. So I pulled out my green piggy bank, grabbed the silver dollar, Bought the water gun, came home. I'm all excited. Look at my water gun. Mom and dad were not as excited. My dad had gone somewhere, actually, and I was talking to my mom, and my mom was just furious with me. You can't do that, and she just reads me the riot act of all the things I've done wrong. And I, I don't remember all the, what took place, except the final verdict was she went back, she got the silver dollars, she had bought it back, she had gotten that money, and she had said, I want your piggy bank, I want your silver dollars, they're mine. I'm seven or eight. That's my money. You are not taking my money. So I'm a little upset. And she said, this is my house. These are my things. And while you live here, something to the effect of this. Rough paraphrase. Basically, while you live here, get over it. These are mine. So she took it back. She went off, took. I'm steaming. I am. For a seven or eight-year-old, I am just steaming. Gears are turning. Okay. I got this. You're saying those are yours. So I reasoned out my little mind that everything in my bedroom was theirs. Okay. That means my bed's theirs. All of my Star Wars action figures are theirs. All my balls, all my toys, all my books, my records. Yeah. And I take every last item in my room and move it into their bedroom. I don't know how I moved the mattress. I don't know how I got that stuff in there, but somehow I moved everything. My room was totally clean, and I was resigned. I was just going to sleep on the floor. 
she came back, and clearly, I had missed the message. (laughs) That is defiance. See, when we do that with God, when God is trying to show us, he's trying to give us the second chance. He's trying to show us a way out, and we refuse to see it. That is defiance. So Saul's final act of defiance would come at great peril. In the last chapter of 1 Samuel, we find out that he dies. That he would thrust himself on his own sword as the Philistines approach. The second thing we were going to hit is David's acquired devotion. So, what's going on with David? How did we get here? So you have to understand, David... David's had an interesting path up until now. So he's told, you're going to be king, which that'd be pretty exciting, right? Except let's really understand the scenario in which that took place. Samuel would come to David, and amongst his brothers, would anoint him and say, you're king. Now I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. If somebody in our house came in with a little bit of oil, threw it on top of Tessa, Brady, or Hayden, and said, you are now royalty. And the only people in the room is our family. That'd be a little weird. Be like, huh? Okay. Awesome. You're king. And I can imagine it would take some time. Now, clearly the rumors had started going, and people had caught on to this, and I think even... Jonathan was well aware of this taking place, but the scenario and the way it's painted is is a little strange. The next thing is, Samuel, he's your key advocate. He dies. So while for Saul, Samuel dying probably was really scary because he probably felt a sense of finality. For David, it was probably also scary, but in a different way. It's like, wait, you're the only one that really thinks I'm king. So how does that work? So David is in a bit of a precarious spot, and we have seen now, through his last several dealings, we've seen kind of him waffle between acts of devotion, twice sparing the king's life. We have also seen him, though, kind of do some shady stuff. He's lying to Achish, who's the king of Gath, which is a region of the Philistines. He, he lies to him and basically says, hey, yeah, no, I'm attacking all these uh, cities that are friendly to Israel. King's like, cool. Like David. Yeah, I mean, Saul's never going to take this guy back. He's just a constant stench. And in reality, what David's doing is raids against the people that God has already pronounced judgment upon. But he's living this checkered life, and that checkered life is going to get him into trouble. And it does it right here. See, in chapter 28... Achish says, hey, David, you've been amazing. You've been here for days and years. And never once have I seen you be inconsistent. He goes, I'll tell you what, we're about to go attack Israel. You join us. We're going to go take them out. David's like, oh, yeah, let's go do it. It says, you've seen what I can do. So Achish is like, okay, you're going to be my bodyguard. It's a big deal. So David, he's going to then team up with Achish and... And he's going to apparently go into battle. Now, then what we see in chapter 29 is that whole scene gets really bizarre. And it gets bizarre because, well, one, we've got to imagine David's predicament. He spared Saul's life. Is he really going to go attack Saul? What's he going to do? 
How's this going to work? Is he going to take out the Philistines? There are thousands, it records. That's a lot of people. You might be good, but you may not be that good. So how is this going to work? He's got to feel like, wow, I'm in an impossible situation. And just like Saul, I think his sins have got him into a little bit of a pickle. Because it does that. Our secret sin puts us in a weird place. And now he's afraid. I I don't know. I I would imagine he was afraid. I guess uh, we don't get the clear account that he's afraid yet. But the Philistines would say, there's no way he's coming with us. Absolutely not. So instead of doing that, they kick him out. He goes back. Um, When he goes back home, see, I think this was actually God's second chance here. I think it's God saying, I'm actually going to do this a little bit differently than you're expecting. I'm giving you a second chance. So as he goes back, though, Ziklag, which is where he was living, is burning. His wives, along with everybody else's wives and children, have been taken. And this is a scary spot. And this is where we read in 1 Samuel 30, 1 through 15. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. It's a lot of grief. David's two wives had also been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And I believe this is the major turning point in the story. In verse 6, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. See, we had seen a couple of weeks ago that in great fear, David seemed to kind of fall apart a little bit. But now we're seeing the kind of training ground that brings about real devotion. So I think God had been putting David in a crucible of sorts, trying to teach him, when you were afraid, I want you to be like you were when you were facing the giant. When you're afraid, I want you to remember that I've got your back. When you're afraid, I want you to come to me. You don't need to lie about what you're doing. I will take care of you. And that was a major turning point. And it says a couple of verses later, And David inquired of the Lord. I think Psalm 56 gives us a taste of where David's head was. 56, just the first four verses say, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And by God's mercy, And through a miraculous set of events, somebody is left behind from the raiding party of the Amalekites. They are able to then go in and basically wipe out the whole band. Awesome bookend here, because in the beginning, Saul would fail to carry out 
this, but David inquiring of the Lord, the Lord tells him go, and he attacks the Amalekites, brings his family back. See, it's not our mistakes that define us. It's our response to God's mercy. It's not our mistakes that define us, but our response to God's mercy. I want to tell you about a man named Maverick. That's not his real name, primarily because I want him to be able to deny it if uh, he ever heard the story. But Maverick and his wife were incredibly dear friends of my wife and I. Maverick was one of those guys that when you came in contact with him, you're like, wow, this is a man of God. He's always leading the discipleship groups, the prayer groups, the Bible studies. Every other word out of his mouth seems to be a scripture verse. You hear this guy and you think, wow, he's got things going on. And his wife, most spirit-filled person I think I've ever encountered. Absolutely amazing. Some of the stories and things that you would see God working in and through her, you realized, wow, God is working powerfully in this couple. And they became heroes for my wife and I. For marriage, we think, man, if there's one couple that we want to model in our marriage, it's got to be this couple. They are amazing. If there's somebody in their spiritual walk that I want to model, it's, it's these people. They're amazing. They're heroes. So you can imagine the day where we'd get a phone call from Maverick's wife. She said, I'm still trying to work out what to do, but I was praying. And as I was praying, I felt like the Lord told me to go check on my daughter. So I got up and checked on my daughter and walked in on my husband being inappropriate and find out that this wasn't a one-time occurrence, that there had been plenty of inappropriateness, and she basically had to leave. The marriage was dissolved. My hero fell, and I was crushed. And I wondered what restoration would look like for my friend, because even after he was out, for the longest time, he would not come clean. Well, it wasn't really sin. I mean, we, I won't go into details, but he would justify what took place and say it wasn't as bad as all that, and then try to make it sound somehow more palpable. And I wondered, what does restoration look like? What is a second chance? I had a chance to meet up with them uh, sometime recently, and I was amazed at the difference. He has since very much owned his mistakes, and he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He tells me straight up, I have really blown it. He goes, but I want to tell you what God is doing now. So I'll never minister the same way again. He goes, I've come to accept that. That's part of where I am. But God has given me a voice for the down and out. I'm renovating rental properties in inner city Baltimore. And there I meet some thugs. I meet some people that nobody could talk to. Drug dealers, crackheads. And I get to tell them about Jesus. A lot of these guys have been in prison. And we can share stories. And I get a chance to minister. See, I think it was a long road for him. He had to come to grips with that secret sin. He had to own it. He had to give it to God. But he did. And God gave him a plan B. What does devotion look like? We talk about David's acquired act of devotion. It means joining God's plan unconditionally. Joining God's plan unconditionally. Even if God's plan looks different than mine, 
Even if that means I've got to take some lumps along the way, even if it seems like God is delayed, it is joining God's plan unconditionally. What about God's apparent delay? So what is God doing in all this time? Why did he take so long? Why would he go this path where it just seems like, really, God, you told him you're ripping the kingdom out, and it's years later. Saul is told the kingdom is torn from you. But it doesn't seem to be torn. He's chasing after David, and you've told David. Kingdom's been given to you. You're anointed as king. But years would go by. And in the midst of that delay, what does that mean? How do you work with that delay? How do you recognize that God is still working when it seems like everything that you thought God was doing just came to an abrupt halt? See, God's apparent delay, I believe, was to reveal the real character of both Saul and David. Don't ever mistake God's delay as God's absence. God's still at work. And when he's ready to wrap it up, he does it masterfully. If you Ever watch somebody solve a Rubik's Cube? It fascinates me. Right before the end, I was going to bring a video, but it actually went so fast, it wasn't worth showing. We could show it over and over and over, but I don't know if you know this, like the record now is like five or six seconds for solving a cube, so it looks like this. Messed up cube and done cube. You're like, that'd be kind of anticlimactic as we kind of dim the lights and everybody wait and be like, okay, go ahead and show the video, and it's done. So if you take somebody who's a little bit slower, like myself, right before the cube is solved, you get down to the very end, and there's this move sequence that you have to do that when you're doing it, it messes up the entire cube. The entire cube is like scrambled. And if somebody talks to you at just the right moment, it stays that way. So (laughs) if, however, you keep going and you finish, the entire cube comes back together. And I think that's what happens a lot of times with God. The blocks don't look right. Everything is messed up. And we're thinking, God, where are you? This can't possibly be you. I am not seeing how you're working right now. And then in the blink of an eye, it's done. And that's what happens at the end of 1 Samuel. We see David is kind of basically put off to the side. Saul is taken out. Even his heirs are effectively taken out. So... David, even though he's in a mess, let's face up to the fact that David's gotten himself into a mess. God's like, that's okay, I got this mess. I'm not even going to let you fight, so that way you don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to pick you up, put you over here. Hey, but while you're there, because this is how God works, why don't we just go ahead and take out those Amalekites I wanted to take out anyway. And he allows all this to take place. David's off doing this other thing. Saul's over here. Saul's taken out. When it's done, everything seems to be as it should be. That's how God works. But during that time, I think we learned something really, really important about Saul. We learned that he cherished his sin. In Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I think with Saul, that's what we see. I think what happened is he's always cherished. I mean, we see in 1 Samuel 15, he makes a monument to himself. If we think there's been any improvement with Saul's life, all we have to see is he's been trying to kill David for a really long time. So what would plan B maybe have looked like for him? Maybe acknowledgement that the kingdom is David's, submitting to God and saying, okay, I yield the throne. Yeah, maybe David would have been king, but hey, maybe Saul would still be alive. Never happened. Don't ever make the mistake that God's delay means his absence. Uh, There's a really neat guy, as I was looking through people, that maybe God delayed a little bit on. 
and did something extraordinary. I came across a man by the name of um, Demos Celebrarios. Demos was a fascinating guy. As I was reading his story, I was just absolutely blown away. At 11 years old, Demos was a drug dealer on the streets of New York City. Kind of got his start off as he was hanging around some other drug dealers, and he gets behind a guy's popping gunshots at somebody else, and he's like, oh, man, i got to hang out with this guy, Jamal. So he's hanging out with this guy, Jamal, and I can't talk like he does, but he's really fun to listen to. So he's hanging out with this other guy and basically gets roped in to selling drugs. And he's like, man, that's what I want to do, because if I sell drugs, I can make so much money. He sees all these other people trying to do it the old-fashioned way and taking them forever. He's like, no, no, I got this. But he grew up in a fairly wealthy neighborhood. His parents were pretty well off, and so he was a little bit smarter than than the average kid getting into this. And his road would be very, very checkered. By age 15, he had already been arrested and and thrown into jail. And he was only there for a short time as he basically was let out on parole. And he then got even more into it and became a drug boss, a kingpin. And he would become known as Street God. That was his name. As time would go on, he became so powerful in the streets that if any drugs were changing anywhere from New York City to North Carolina, he probably had his hand in it somewhere. And he would deal in everything from all kinds of different drugs. And people had come to fear him, and rightfully so, because he was a thug. His parents were connected enough and wealthy enough that through, even though he was arrested on numerous occasions, they could never get anything to stick. And they would constantly get him off, at least on parole. And so there was one time he was on parole, and they brought him in for a routine drug test, and he failed. He's really confused, because one of the rules as a drug dealer, basically, is you don't do the drugs, you just deal the drugs. He's like, I'm not doing any drugs. So he's, you know, listening to him tell the story, he's like, the one time I really get busted, I didn't do anything. And he goes, so, but they, they told me, yeah, you're doing, there some years, so I won't get into specific drugs, but you're doing this one kind of drug. And he was like, no, I'm not. But then he realized, I actually use that type of drug, and he would cook it. Cook it to make another type of drug, and it must have come through his fingers or, or whatever. But he ends up, so he's, he's sitting down and uh, talking to the lady that's basically telling me, you're going to go off to Rikers. And Rikers is, uh, as prisons go, this is not a good place. If you end up there, even the guys going to jail are afraid of being sent to that place. Because if you go there, a lot of people end up getting scars. and There's a lot of makeshift weapons that people are able to make inside the cell, and people get scarred. He says, you can always tell somebody coming out of Rikers because they've got slice lines from razor blades and scars and pot marks, and you know, okay, I know where he's been. So he's sitting on the couch, and he's terrified. Female parole officer gets up, goes in the back, and he realizes, I can get these handcuffs off. And he manages... To get them in front. She comes back. I don't think she realized that the handcuffs were in front of them. So she's still talking. Say, yeah, unfortunately, you're going to go to, to jail. He says, I'm going to go to Rikers? Yeah. He gets up and says, no, I'm not. And he runs out the door. And he's like, I, you know, if you listen to him tell the story, it's just so funny. He's like, and I'm, you know, I'm buff, right? I mean, I am super in shape. He's like, I'm leaping whole flights of stairs and two flights of stairs and jumping down. And I just hear all the police officers trying to catch up. And he's leaving them in the dust. He's like, but I remember there's this one big police officer at the bottom that checked me in. I'm like, Dad, that's not going to be good. So he goes down there. And it's the funniest thing, listen to hear tell a story, because he's like, and by the grace of God, he wasn't there. <laughs> so he goes out the front door. He, he manages. He's going down the street. He says it's a really busy street. And he's got his hand, move, 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 move. And he's running down the street. And he's running, move, move. And he 
ducks into a barbershop, dives into a closet. He said, nobody actually even saw me. It was inside the closet. I could hear all these people going down and a lot of shouting, a lot of commotion. Hey, yeah, the officers are chasing some dude and they're running down. And he's in there and he's like, just sitting there hiding. And one of the barber guys opens up the door. He's like, dude. And Damas says, shh, shh. Yeah, it's me they're looking for, but don't rat me out, dude. He's like, all right. He goes, I need you to get my barber. I don't remember what the name of the barber was, but it was something like Fat Mike or something like that. And so he's like, yeah, I need you to get Fat Mike or, or whatever the guy's name is. So this guy he describes as like got more jewelry than Mr. T. And so was able to get to the shop and with some chain cutters take his cuffs off, but they couldn't get the cuffs off his hand. So he's in there. He's like, he can now move his hands. He's like, well, what do we do? He's like, put me in one of your barber chairs and just start cutting my hair. So they put him in the chair. He's in the chair now, and he's waving his arms around. So if anybody comes in, it doesn't look like he's like, what do you want? He's like, I don't care. Make me Mr. T, make designs in my hair. I don't care. Just cut. So he's in there, and the police officers, they're all coming in and out, and they don't recognize him because he just looks like a customer. So enough time passes, they can't find him. He finally gets up. The guy's like, we need to get you out of here. He goes to North Carolina, and he basically escapes. He eventually would meet somebody else who can get the handcuffs off, which is kind of a fun side story in and of itself. Gets the handcuffs off. He's now basically changing his alias. He's changing who he is. He's living a different life. One of these times, he would have somebody actually... Because of the thugs he would be hanging out with, somebody would put a gun to his head. He would say, Lord, please, please help me. And the gun would jam. He got a second chance. The gun would jam. And he would reflect back, realizing in that millisecond, it could have all been over. But God had mercy. So time would go on as this guy would get back on the street and become kingpin. His sister would then plant seeds in his life. And, and share the gospel with him and say, you know what, you need Jesus. And he was like, man, I don't need all that. And no, oh, no, you need Jesus. And he was like, man, she's another Bible thumper, basically, person. And so one day he's like, all right, God, if you're there, I need you to show me. I need you to show me like my sister says you're there. And yeah, so he closes his eyes. When he opens them, he sees a vision. And in that vision, he sees two men measuring out a grass field, and he is terrified. And I have no idea what that vision means, but it's an interesting vision. He opens his eyes, he's terrified, and he's like, all right, I believe in your Jesus, I believe in your Jesus. But he would do a Bible study for a while, but then he'd kind of fall away and get back into the drug business. As he was in the drug business, and sometime later, he would end up in a precarious spot where he would basically cry out to God and say, God, today I want to give my life to Jesus Christ, because he had gotten something to do with uh, cocaine and crack, and, and he said, so God, as of today, I'm giving up all the drugs. I won't do any more drugs, because Lord, I know that wouldn't honor you. I'm just going to do weed, because that's natural. And, and that, that's what he would do, and so he would basically went down this path, so he like almost got better. And then he was like, okay, now you need to realize this transformation process took some time. And he goes, so I'm, I'm still making bank. He's like, so I would go in the church, I'd look for the prettiest girl, and I would sit down, because I knew I was going to tithe. He was like, I'd sit down next to the prettiest girl, and he goes, you know what's fun about drug dealers, they carry around wads of cash. So that offering plate would come around, and it'd be like, bang, and put in a wad of hundreds. The girl next to him would be like, whoa. And he says, it was actually really kind of funny because for a while the pastor was like, wow, giving's really up. We need to start a building fund. And he started doing all this stuff. And he's like, 
He was like, man, God, I really appreciate the way you're uh, blessing my business. But then he would get involved with some other people. Because, see, this is what community is about. He would get involved with some other people that began kind of working and investing in his life. And he realized, you know what, I have to give that up too. He was like, sorry, building fun. But he gave up all the drugs. He gave up all of the ways that would eventually land him in jail or dead. You know, 30 of his closest friends are now dead. But he would completely transform, but he realized, I still ran away. So one day in church, he says, you have to understand, I'm in the middle of New York City. So we're in the church, and I'm like, I need to turn myself in. They're like, why? There's a bench warrant out for my arrest. He said, everybody started laughing at me. I'm like, why are they laughing at me? I'm telling you, I need to go turn myself in. They're like, dude, half the people in here have a bench warrant out for their arrest. <laughs> he's like, uh, okay. So he's like, well, no, I really need to do it. He goes, at that point, multiple officers in the congregation stand up. He's like, oh, that can't be good. And one by one, they say they will write a letter on behalf of this young man. Well, he would turn himself in, and he would actually spend some time in jail. And this is just the way God works, because uh, he said, my theology was a little rocky, but uh, I was very persuasive. So he goes, uh, he'd be in the jail, so he'd be like, hey, Bible study in 10 minutes. And everybody would just hop and come over, and they'd be doing Bible study in jail. And he'd end up leading multiple people to Christ inside the prison cell. And so he would pull all these people over to the Lord, and then finally when he would get his sentence, he would walk in, and the, the judge would say, I have just one question for you. Why did you turn yourself in? You've been on the run for five years. You've changed your alias. You are virtually off the grid. Nobody knows you exist. You probably would have gotten away with it for the rest of your life. Why did you turn yourself in? He said, ma'am, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. And I have committed myself to obey the laws of the land. And whether I'm inside a jail or out, I can still serve my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Judge responded abruptly, get that man out of here. So he goes out in the hallway like, oh, dang, that didn't go well. So he's like, Lord, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? She calls him back in sometime later, looks at him, looks down at her notes, looks at him, looks down at her notes. He would go on to account that this happened four times as he's sitting there nervous trying to figure it out. She goes, the man standing in front of me is not the same man in these papers. You might go. See, God's delays allow for miracles. God's delays allow for character change. So, as we look at, now what? What does this mean for me? I've, I've talked a lot about secret sin, and I don't want to make this sound like everybody's got a secret sin. But the idea of sin often is a kind of a secret hidden thing that we want to keep to ourselves. Because if I reveal that sin, I'm worried about the consequences. And we've already seen what fear does. See, fear entraps. Fear puts us in shackles. Fear puts us in a place that we really cannot afford to be. But revealing that sin, see, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. When we reveal that sin, God can work. Second thing is that we need to accept God's mercy. 
It's a scary thing throwing yourself completely into the hands of God, not knowing where it's going to go. And I think that's what Damas did. He thought he was going to land in jail. He thought it was done. He thought, well, guess I'll be serving Jesus behind bars and Rikers. But if we are willing to accept God's mercy, no matter how messed up our life is, no matter how much we feel like we've blown it, if we are willing to give that to God, He is powerful and He's merciful. We need to throw our hands, we need to throw our lives into God's mercy. We need to accept God's mercy. And the final thing is we need to devote ourselves to God. And what does that mean? It means we unconditionally join ourselves with God's plan. And if that means God wants me to leave here and move to China, then I need to leave here and move to China. If that means I need to stay right where I'm at and suffer the abuse of my undeserved boss, so be it. No matter what God wants to do, even if that means he would allow me to take 10 years to finish seminary, I need to be able to say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. We need to call upon the Lord. There are some of us here that may be walking a little bit of a life of duplicity, probably all of us to some extent. We need to remove the duplicity in our lives. And we need to turn to the Lord. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6, says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have a prayer team that meets down here after service. If you will just come and share with them and say, I believe, they will take the cue and they can help walk you through some scriptures to know that your relationship with the Lord is right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are powerful. You are merciful. And I pray, Lord God, that you would do a mighty work in each of our lives as we join with you unconditionally to whatever you would have us do. In Jesus' name.